Philippians chapter 2 is where we are this morning, so let's take our Bibles and make sure we have our eyes on them because it's the Word that does the work, right church? So let's have our Bibles open, put our noses right inside them. Philippians chapter 2, we'll get there in just a moment to help set the framework for where we're headed. I want to just tell you about a friend I have, he's in Des Moines, he pastors a church there, Frontier Church, his name's Cole. And Cole's a good friend, uh, and as I've gotten to know him and watched his church plant and how it's grown, uh, they're known really for uh, one thing, and they say it in three words. It's an interesting, I don't know if I use the word slogan or motto, I'm not sure what the word is. But Frontier Church, they say this a lot, that they are fighting for joy. Now, when I first heard it, I was like, that's odd, because I don't always hear fighting and joy together. Wouldn't you agree with that? And yet, this is what they say a lot. Like, we're fighting for joy. And I thought about that lately, especially the last few days, because those three words really summarize well what I think is the heart of Philippians 2, 1 to 4. So your Bibles are open, your eyes are on that text I want us to unpack this section of Scripture today within the context, of course, of the book of Philippians. And notice how Paul is encouraging them to fight for joy. I'm going to talk to you about how that's done, why it's done. We'll go through all that. But just kind of keep those three words in your mind. I'll say them off and on, but I think you'll see in, uh, before you leave today just why those words really sum up this set of four verses as well. And we're going to see two main things today. We're going to kind of get up under two main things. And that is, first of all, the truth of the text. We'll spend some time kind of unpacking these verses, looking at them, making sure we understand them in context, as well as, uh, you know, just what the original author meant to the original audience. But that truth will lead us to some tension points. I'm going to warn you in advance. And so be aware, we're going to get under the truth of the text, and then we're going to Endure the tension of the text. And we'll come out of that well because God's Holy Spirit will use it to change our lives because the Word does the work. So Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Follow along with me as I read these first four verses. The Bible, inspired, of course, by God's Holy Spirit here through Paul, says this to us, If then, and you may see that and think that Paul is saying, well, there may be some doubt Maybe this is not true, but that's not the way this is actually worded in the original language. The word if in the Greek language, often based on the the, um, placement and the structure and the forms of the words, it can mean the word since or as is the case. And so this is very true to be read since then or if then as is the case. There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Let's push pause there and say, wow, that's a pretty intense runway, wouldn't you say? I mean, Paul is laying out some, some, um, some pavement for something he wants to land. He does it in four statements, and they're intense. He must have something pretty big he wants to share. He does. We'll get there. Can we take a minute, though, and just make sure we understand this runway he's kind of unfolding? He talks about encouragement in Christ, speaking there of of the fact that we are together in Christ. The word encouragement is the word for coming alongside someone. He's probably speaking here of the camaraderie and fellowship we have by being in Christ together. We're part of a body And so we have this encouragement of being in Christ together. It's his body. We're in this walking alongside each other. He then mentions this consolation of love or comfort of love. It's important to keep that in mind as he just came off a section on how they were facing opposition and they were to stand strong together in the same struggle as Paul was. They were to be united. He says here, there's comfort in love. Now, interestingly, He doesn't qualify this love. No, he does qualify encouragement. It said it's encouragement in Christ. Look at the next phrase. He talks about the fellowship or the 
uh, koinonia of the Spirit. So something is binding us together. And I should more correctly say someone is binding us together. It's the Holy Spirit. So there is a qualifier for fellowship. There's a qualifier for encouragement. But there's not one for love. This comfort of love. I have read a couple of options. Some think it is Christ's love. They would say the word Christ refers to love. Could be. Some think it may be the love the church has for each other in this camaraderie, this fellowship. Could be. Can I tell you what I think it is? And this is a lot of speculation. I've got, I think, some good grounds for it. But I'm not dogmatic about it. But I think Paul is thinking about God's love. I think it's interesting that there is a Trinitarian arrow in verse 1. I think it's Christ's encouragement, God's love, and the Spirit's fellowship. Now, I can't prove that. It's just my speculation amidst others. But, you know, it is God's love that Paul references back in chapter 1 as the reason he's able to love these people so well. He has them, you know, the, the love of God in him. He's praying for their love to abound more and more in verse 9. So I tend to think what's in Paul's head is that God's love brings comfort. Christ has encouragement because we're together in his body. The Spirit is what joins us together. All of, the, uh, all of the Godhead is working together for us to know their affection and their mercy. Not only what's to us, but their affection and mercy through us. So all of this, all of the Godhead is working something mightily in us. I also believe this is what he's thinking because the next command is so incredibly difficult. I think what Paul's doing is he's laying a Trinitarian runway for the hardest command you'll ever hear. Because he knows there's no human being alive who could make you do this. Only God could cause this to happen. So that's my reasoning for saying he is bringing every bit of the Godhead into our view. Before he says to us, verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way. Now that is the crux of this set of verses. That's the punch of the passage we often say. That singular phrase says it all. What's Paul after in these four verses? He wants them to make his joy complete by thinking the same way. In fact, uh, the main verb is the first part of verse 2. Make my joy complete. It's the only imperative in the first four verses, which is a little odd. I'll admit to you, it sounds like Paul's being a little selfish, wouldn't you say? Like, hey, make me happy. Think about me. Deepen my joy. It's not. I'll explain why as we move forward. Just understand what Paul is calling for is for them to think of his joy and to deepen it, to complete it by thinking the same way. So you can't really divorce these two phrases. One's an imperative. One's a descriptor. But they do go together. Paul is saying, I want you to Help my joy deepen, mature, to finish it, to complete it by thinking the same way. There's a word for this. It's the word unity. Can you say it with me? Unity. And who here would say, yes, Todd, you're right. That is one of the hardest things to do. I mean, you know what is in your marriage. You know what is in your parenting. You know what is in your work. And you know what is in church. Unity is hard. This is why in the New Testament, we're never told to create unity. We're never told to find unity. We have it through the Holy Spirit. We're all, we are commanded to keep it, to work hard at maintaining it. Why would the New Testament writers say this multiple times? Because they know unity is hard work. Now, when you read the phrase thinking the same way, I don't want you to hear that as Paul saying you must be ditto marks of each other, like just copycats. You know, we're cookie cutter Christians. You wear the same thing. You say the same phrase. That's not what Paul's after. In fact, let me just prove this to you. This word thinking 
the same way, this phrase, this set of words, especially the word thinking, it's used 10 times in this book, but in different ways and is translated differently throughout the book. Sometimes it refers to someone's uh, posture or lifestyle. Sometimes it refers to someone's concern for someone else. Other times it's translated as mindset, sometimes even as an action. There's 10 times in which thinking is used as the way to describe someone's overall posture. So what Paul is after here is not asking the church to create cookie-cutter you know, uh, Christians like we all look the same. He's not after uniformity. As one author put it, he's calling his friends to seek the same goal with a like mind. In other words, you are thinking that even amongst all of our differences and with all of our beautiful diversity, we are after the same thing. That's what's happening here. That's unity. He's not calling for uniformity. He's calling for unity. He describes this unity as, look at the next three phrases, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. I think those are further descriptions of thinking the same way. Notice that having the same love is the first thing he mentions. I think this is intriguing because, do you recall what he prayed for them in verses 9 to 11? His prayer is this, basically, that your love would abound yet more and more. So Paul was praying that they would have an increasing, abounding love. Here he says, you know what? Think the same way and let's start by loving each other. A common love from God, for God, for each other. He talks about being united in spirit. This is an interesting word here. It's from two Greek words meaning souls together. So I love this translation, united in spirit, but I'd be fine with the phrase, for souls together. Don't you like that? I mean, that sounds like something that could stick. Like, is your church unified? Oh, you bet we are. We are souls together. What it does is this speaks to something not external, but internal. Again, Paul's not trying to create an external uniformity where we look the same, dress the same, say the same. We're kind of marching. No, Paul says we're going to have a beautiful diversity among us. Our differences actually help. But we must think, have a mindset, an overall posture aimed at the same thing. Which I believe, if you look at the context, is Christ being magnified. That's the end game of all of our efforts. We must think that way. That's what chapter 1 lays out for us. He's calling for this united way of thinking, intent on one purpose. The purpose, I think, is Christ being exalted. Magnifying the name of Christ. So... Here Paul is laying out a good bit of pavement that's Trinitarian because he's going to land a pretty tough command. Be unified. Be of one mind. Work hard at staying together and fighting division. Now notice, he wants them to act this way and to be this way so that he experiences joy. He calls it Complete joy, the word there is mature, um, uh, perfect is another word used. So Paul is asking them to fight against division, fight for unity so that he experiences deeper joy. Now I asked you earlier, does that sound selfish of Paul? Does that sound arrogant? Does it make Paul like, hey, I want you to make sure I'm good? It's not, because what's happening here. And this caught my attention somewhere about Wednesday or Thursday over a campfire at George Wythe State Park. Julie and I were camping, and I'm just mulling these verses over. And it hit me, Paul's not being selfish at all. He's actually calling on these Philippian Christians to do what he did for them. Can I show you something quite amazing? That this paragraph, verses 1 through 4, actually mirrors the previous paragraph, 21 to 30, and I believe verse 2 is a mirror of verse 25 in chapter 1. As I mulled this over, it kind of came out in diagram or chart form. So perhaps a visual here is better than me trying to walk you through it. I'll show it to you. Here's kind of what came out of just realizing that Paul isn't 
clamoring to make sure he feels better because they're doing what he said. He's actually, in some sense, I'll use this vernacular, he's saying, hey, return the favor. In other words, live like I lived. What do you mean, Todd? Here's what's happening. Back in chapter 1, you would agree, and I think we can show it from the text, that Paul said he was torn between two things. What were they? Life and death. And he said, like it or not, church, here's what the text says, that he felt death was a gain. He said that would be far better but it was more needful or necessary for him to remain with them. Now watch this. So he said, I will stay alive for your joy and progress in the faith. Remember that, verse 25? It's not wrong to say Paul gave up the gain of death to stay with these people so they would see more joy. That's, not, that's biblical. Now he's saying, church, return the favor. Work hard at getting along. Pursue unity so that I have joy. You follow that now? It's really just a mirrored paragraph. Paul here is showing how he fought for their joy. He wants them now to fight for his joy. And isn't that the essence of partnership? It's not a partnership if one person's doing all the work. Somebody say amen. It's when two people come together, two parties together. In this case, Paul and the Philippian church are working together. And there's mutual selflessness. Paul's willing to stay alive, be in ministry, endure suffering, because that will increase their joy and progress. And he's saying, now I want you to learn to get along, be unified, fight division for my joy. Man, that's a wonderful relationship to have when both people are fighting for the joy of the other person. That's having a warrior on your behalf. Can you just admit with me that that's compelling? That's attractive? That's inviting. So Paul here, I think, is just, again, we're, we're, he's... Um, lifting up the real theme of the book, which is partnership. And as we've subtitled it, uh, Philippians is all about seeing and, and enjoying the joy of gospel partnership. Here's a great example of how it works. It's when you think of the other person and you fight for their joy and they fight for your joy. Man, that type of selflessness on both sides is a wonderful partnership to be a part of. And Paul is saying, this is what he desires with the Philippian church. I'm fighting for your joy. Now, will you fight for my joy? Hope you're tracking with this and it's making sense. This visual helped me a lot. Hope it's helping you. Now, the question would be, well, how were they to fight for his joy? How were they to work towards unity so that Paul would experience the same kind of joy that he knows they'll experience by him staying alive and serving and ministering to them? Well, this is where verse 3 kicks in. And if you thought verse 2 was hard, hang on. Verse 3 may very well be the hardest verse in the Bible to obey. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. This is how we make sure verse 2 happens. This is how we think the same way, have the same love, are united in our souls, and have our minds on one purpose. It's by not doing anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, considering others as more important than ourselves. Now, I'm laid low by that. You say, how, Todd? I, I think it's the first two words. <laughs> like, Paul doesn't leave leeway. You don't get a spectrum. There's no quota for like, hey, I struck out three times last week, but I've got like three mulligans. There's no mulligan in this verse. I mean, are you reading it with me? Do nothing. So I, I'm, I've already failed. I failed. I've failed this test. I'm a sinner. I'm already condemned by this verse. I have given Julie responses in 34 years of marriage. I've given her responses on purpose that were designed for my self-interest. I have. 
I've done things with my children that the end result was that I would benefit. I've had moments with you as a church and our elders where in my mind I'm working an angle. I've done that. I hope it's not a pattern, but I've done it. So guess what? I'm convicted. I, I, I'm not innocent. I'm already fallen short. My guess is by your smiles and squirmishness, you know you're condemned as well. In fact, here's, here's what I'll just say. I'll address the obvious. Nobody in this room has done this. Take a deep breath and relax. You're in good company, right? Like, okay, Todd, so we're all fighting an uphill battle. Like, who can do this? I'm really glad you asked that because I think for the first time, we see why Paul laid the runway he did. Now we see why he laid so much Trinitarian pavement down. Because you're exactly right. And I'm getting emotional thinking about it. It's an impossibility to live, verse 3, without the help of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not just hard. It is impossible. So do you see why now Paul brings every bit of the Godhead to bear upon this request, upon this command? Because we need God to do this. You don't need to turn over a new leaf, pedal faster, run harder. All of that will fail you again. What you need is God empowering you to aim for this incredibly high goal. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. We won't attain its perfection still, but God's forgiveness and grace in our life will be what makes us get up again. As Proverbs says, it's the righteous man who falls seven times but gets up. Amen. Hallelujah, church, right? It'll be God's grace and forgiveness that gives us strength to get up and try again. I just want to encourage you, do not read verse 3 outside of the context of verse 1. It will frustrate you and defeat you, and you'll, you'll lose all motivation. But with God, and I'll say this correctly, theologically, every bit of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, all of them working on your behalf, you can aim for doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, you can consider others as more important than yourselves. He then expands on verse 3 by telling us how this looks in a more concrete shoe leather fashion. He says, here's how this plays out. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So something's happening in your perspective. You realize you're going to work for unity. You're going to fight for another's joy. And so to do this, you can't do things for ulterior motives. You've got to come at it honestly and purely. And so you begin to look to others' interest, not your own. As verse 3 says, it's not that you're unambitious, you're just not selfishly ambitious. Instead, you are ambitious for their sake. So what's switched is, who's the, at the top of the heap? It's not you anymore, it's the other person. Now, here's something interesting about verse 4. Follow with me very carefully. In the original, the phrase, to his own interests." As well as the last phrase, the interest of others, it's really not in there. It has to be supplied. And it's a good supply. It's a good translation. I'm not saying that. But literally what Paul is saying is this. You must look to others, not yourself. 
That's the most literal rendering. So Paul's not trying to specifically say, hey, look to someone else's finances, not your own. He doesn't say that. He doesn't narrow down and say, look to someone else's schedule, not your own, or look to their emotions, because he knows it could be a wide range of issues, right? There's a host of things that people have needs with. So he says, look to others, not yourself. Consider them more important than yourself. And I don't think he's saying that we shouldn't look to ourselves to some degree, because if you don't look to yourself to some degree, you can't look to others. It's like the airlines say, put your mask on first before you put it on a toddler or a child. That's good advice. It may sound selfish, but it's not. If you don't survive, they won't survive either. It's like saying, is it selfish to eat? No, you need to eat so you can have energy to serve others. Are you with me? So Paul isn't saying here, don't take care of yourself. I think this is a great way to make sure we have the evidence needed to just kind of reject, you know, asceticism, monasticism, uh, monk-ish-isms. Like, I'm just going to go over here all by myself. I'm going to desecrate my body. I'm going to reject all good things. And I'm just going to make sure that I'm, I'm solely in this one place where in all my suffering and, and things I bring on myself, I can get to know the Lord. Or they would say a higher power or nirvana. Yeah, that's ludicrous. Okay, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, look to yourself, but realize you're not the top of the heap. Look to others first. See what their needs are. And the word here, look, means to contemplate, to intentionally consider, to think. And so we're to gaze at those outside of us and ask ourselves, how can I help? What can I do? What selfless ambition can I undertake that would help this person and us work towards unity? That's what Paul is calling for. In other words, all of you should consider yourself equipped with an invisible radar. It's right here. And you're scanning every conversation, every crowd, and you're not asking, how can I work this to my advantage? You're not asking that. You're saying, what is needed in this moment to help the other person? so that we together are more unified and working towards the same goal. Paul says when that occurs, his joy will deepen. Now notice some things about this command. It is to show selfless action. I think we'd all agree verse 3 and 4 could be summed up with selflessness. That's a good summary word. We see it in the chart here. But selflessness is what you show. What is it that drives selflessness? The words in the text, do you see it? In humility, consider others more important than yourself. So he's saying humility is what you have. Selflessness is what you show. Interesting, isn't it? We often equate those, and they are connected but one is internal and comes out as selflessness. That's external. I say it like this. Humility is the why behind the what of selflessness. And selflessness is the how behind the rightful desire for unity and joy. So if you want to begin this trek, if you want God to do something in you that only he can do, Pray for, work towards unity. Excuse me. Pray for and work towards humility because that will express itself in selflessness which then results in unity and joy. The whole beginning point is humility. Now listen, church. Can we just all admit it's hard to talk about humility? Because the minute you do, you have to ask yourself, well, are we being humble and talking about it? Like, isn't it kind of, the, it's kind of the unvoiced trait that everyone wants, but no one wants to talk about how to get it? Because you can't appear to be greedy for humility, right? And you can't ever admit you have it. That's a bad idea. So, and you've heard this before. The whole thing about humility is hard to talk about. I admit that. I find it difficult, but I will say this to you. 
you need to find at least one person in your life that will be so gut-level honest with you about humility that you begin to pursue it and develop it. Even if this person says, I think you're doing well in humility, hear that and think about how you can stay on track with that. What needs to stay in place in your life? What fences and measures are helping you stay humble? In other words, if you never talk about it, it's hard to think about pursuing it. So you, you've got to, I don't mean this to be a pastoral negligence, but in some ways this falls upon you to figure this out. You cannot avoid pursuing humility, developing it, fanning into flame this trait. You know, it's this interesting trait because humility, I think it's one of the few, if not the only one of the traits in the Bible where we're told to do it to ourselves. If we don't, God will humble us, right? That's what the scriptures say. But yet, we're told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So it's something that you do to yourself, something that you take action in, and yet you can't walk around saying, hey, how am I doing on being humble? Pretty good? I mean, that's just not going to work most of the time, right? Unless it's someone that you really know, they know you, and you can have an honest nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation. And there's, there's a lot of good practical tips. I'd love to share it now. I can't because of time, but there's some, there's some practical ways to begin to develop humility, to practice it. It goes to our conversations, even our posture, uh, how we receive compliments. It's a lot of practical things that I think can help. But you've got to have someone to talk to about this because pursuing it matters. Developing it matters because humility is the seed from which selflessness grows. No proud person is ever selfless. They're always selfishly ambitious. They're working an angle. Their regular protocol is to, you know, try to figure out how they can benefit in the end. Only humility would actually empower someone to think, you know what, your needs are more important. I want to consider you first. And then act in that way. And when that action occurs, we begin to see unity and joy spread among the church. I say that to you because I want you, I desperately want you, I want us to really pursue humility. I mean, these are large concepts in this text. Wouldn't you agree? There's humility, there's unity, there's joy, there's selflessness. So these are topics we could talk about for weeks, just these four things. I've only got this week. Let me just say, humility must be a central focus of your Christian life. Find that person that you can talk with about how you're doing at it, what needs to change to pursue it more, how you can display it and show it. It matters greatly. If you don't, I would remind you, God will humble you. You know, God will humble you in a macro way. Sometimes when your whole life's just out of kilter, I mean, you're just going the wrong direction with all of your motives and ambition. God can... Turn your whole life around in a humbling way sometimes. He's done that. You've seen that happen to people. He also can do that in micro ways. Sometimes we get off in a certain situation or a certain moment, and then God will use things to humble us. There are small reminders that, oh, this is why I want to keep pursuing humility. I wouldn't want one of these on a large scale. I had one of those in Turkey uh, about two months ago. We were there as well as in Iraq, and we were visiting partners. And so one of our stops, it was a, it was a very heavy schedule. I mean, from the minute we landed, uh, it had been a long flight. We had uh, multiple missionary stops, partner visits. By day three or four, I mean, we were beyond exhausted. Sleep wasn't uh, good when you did get it. The schedules were messed up. But we couldn't stop. We had uh, appointments just every day. So by this day, we're meeting with the Daniel Project partners. I was beyond being able to have some coherent thoughts. But I knew I had to look like I was in charge. So immediately, I'm beginning to think, you know, i got to keep the image up. So we're at this meeting with the Daniel Project people, and they're sharing. We're in a coffee shop. 
Rodrigo's the main presenter. There's some other ladies there and some other men. And, and I can, I'm just nodding. I, I'm doing this. And in fact, I'm doing more than the neck nod. I'm like the whole body bowing nod, you know. So I'm looking around and, and other, I had six pastors with me and they're in the same, but we're all just totally exhausted, just lack of sleep and we can't keep our heads up. I have pictures of all the guys at some point sleeping during presentations. Well, this time it's me and I, and I cannot stay awake. So I said, I'm going to stand up. So I stand up and I kind of, there's only like maybe 10 of us in this whole, maybe 10 or 12 in this entire room. So I'm kind of pacing. I'm trying not to look like I'm nervous. I'm like, oh, I'm enjoying this. And I don't have a clue what's being said, actually. I, I'm just so out of it. But I'm trying to listen, so I'm trying to lean in. I'm all worried about how they think, what they think of me. I'm trying to be polite, but I know it's really like, don't let them think you're lazy. Don't let them think you're sleeping. Don't let them think you can't keep up. Right, Todd? So I'm, I'm walking, and I'm finally, I, I turn, and I'm standing. I'm like, man, i got to figure out how to stay awake. And the lady, she's just like, two chairs in front of me. She's talking. And so I stand to listen to her. And I think I'm looking at her. I'm trying to nod like I mentioned, you know, present a good impression, right? And out of the blue, I just say the dumbest thing I've ever said in public. I literally don't even know where this came from. I must have been sleeping while I was standing. I said out loud, so did you buy the meat thermometer? (laughs) I was like, and the minute I said it, I was wide awake, okay? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I just kept waiting for all the necks to turn and like, what did you, you know? But no one turned. So I'm like, meat thermometer, did someone talk about it? I'm trying to, you know, connect dots. No one mentioned meat thermometer. I, I, was, I wasn't even coherent, but no one turned around. So I'm like, Jesus, please mercy on this moment. Just give me mercy. She didn't say anything back. I thought I was good. You know, still kind of got the pride thing going, right? I'm like, if I can get out of this. So I, I was able to survive a few more minutes. Uh, we got out of there. But the next day, one of our pastors said, hey, I need to ask you a question. He said, what in the world did you mean by asking about the meat tomorrow? I'm like, can I just have a little grace? He just, I said, I, I was not even coherent. I was sleeping while standing. And he said, I think most of us were. So it was a humbling moment. Are you with me? God has ways of making sure we are reminded to stay humble and to pursue it. Now, that's humorous. We get through those moments. I just tell you that because I've had other moments like that in non-humorous fashions, sometimes larger than that, and you have too. I just want to suggest to you, pastorally, pursue humility in advance so God doesn't have to drape you with it unexpectedly. It's humility that is the seed for everything we see here. In fact, I've written this down. I tend to believe it. Humility, it's the breakfast uh, of champions. Like It's what you eat every morning before you leave. And it's what empowers and helps you Stay focused on others, see and hear that radar, and exhibit selfless actions that lead then to greater unity and greater joy. So let me just kind of summarize all that. Then I want to just bring quickly two tensions to your, to your mind. If I were to take those four verses and put them into something besides a chart, which I think that's very helpful, Um, I would say it like this, that the point of this passage, with everything considered, is selflessness is the avenue to joyfulness. And I draw that because of the main verb. Paul said, make my joy complete. But he's not in it for his own reasons. He's actually saying, this is how I have lived for you. Now you live this way for me in like a mutual right kind of partnership. And the principle is, when you're working, when you're fighting for another's joy, that's beneficial to everyone. That's called selflessness. And it is the avenue to joyfulness. So could you just say this out loud with me? As hard as it may be to say, and even harder to live, could you together say this with me? Selflessness is the avenue to joyfulness. A couple of tensions that I think you're feeling from this text Tensions that are in the room right now. 
There's just two of them at least. I want to address those. I felt them immediately the last few days, like, oh, boy, how do I answer that question? Because I had it. The first one is this. I had this thought, like, okay, so you're telling me that that's the avenue to joyfulness? Putting others first? Like, I thought it was about my joy. Like, how, can it, how does it work for me to focus on someone else as the way to be joyful, as the way to receive joy? Like, I don't, I don't think that works. Like, that can't be true. Well, first of all, let me just qualify and make sure I specify with great precision what this actually says. This actually says selflessness is the avenue to joyfulness. It doesn't technically say your joyfulness. And if I were to be honest about the two mirrored texts, I would say Paul admits he's being selfless for their joy, and he's saying, I want you to be selfless for my joy. So in all precise technicality, which all my kids love it in these moments of my hair, okay, the truth is selflessness is the avenue to another's joy. But here's how selflessness works. It has a boomerang effect that God somehow supernaturally, by his spirit, swings that back around to where the very joy that you help someone experience through your selflessness, it comes back to be a source of joy for you. Say, how do you know that, Todd? I'm glad you asked. Here's the verse I base that on. It's a verse that describes Jesus. And it's, this is about him. It's a, it's a powerful verse. It says that Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Whose joy is referencing there? Is it Jesus' joy? Maybe. The joy of pleasing the Father, of obeying the Father's will, quite possibly referring to the joy of Jesus. But what if he's referring to our joy? It may be that Jesus endured the cross for our joy. After all, Jesus fought for your joy. What if it's both? What if in that moment of enduring the cross, the epitome of selfless action, Jesus fought for your joy and then receive the joy of obedience to the Father? That's what I think is going on. That's why selflessness has a boomerang effect. It helps others experience joy, but then it also returns to us and fills us up with joy because it's obedience to the Father. So if you're wondering, is that really the avenue to joyfulness? Let me most assuredly say with Jesus Christ as our supreme example, Yes, it is. And this is why you need all of the Godhead helping you pursue humility and selflessness. Because it's all of the Godhead then that returns that joy to you and to others. I think selflessness, selflessness is multidirectional. And yes, it is the avenue to another's joy and to yours. The other tension I'll mention briefly is this. You say, well, Todd, hearing that makes me wonder if this is really not just a disguised form of selfishness. I mean, think about it. You're saying go serve God and serve others so you can be happy. Isn't that just selfishness, Todd? And maybe you had that question. Maybe you had that tension while I'm speaking. I'll say to you with great clarity, it's not selfishness. But it is satisfaction. And there's a difference. Do you know that God wants you to be satisfied in him? You could insert the words full joy, complete joy, deep joy for satisfaction. God desires that for you. It is not selfish to seek biblical satisfaction. The difference is this. Horizontal satisfaction only is an issue of uh, selfish ambition. We'd, we'd call it conceited ambition. You're only thinking of you. But when it's centered ambition, centered on others, that's actually satisfaction. Consider this. 
you're on a date with your spouse. You're enjoying it. Maybe it's your anniversary. Maybe it's just a, another time of the year. But you lean in to him or her, and you say these words. You say, you make me so happy. Is that a selfish comment? No. Because you're acknowledging the selflessness of your partner and then in almost an implying way, you're saying, I see it, I feel it, and I'm going to return it. It's almost like a, a, a moment to communicate your desire to reflect the same thing. You're expressing your joy from the fact that your spouse is thinking of you in all their actions. And because I'm this joyful, you can bank on this. I'm going to live the same way. And that's what joyful, selfless people do when they say that. They're not being selfish. They're being appreciative. They're communicating a desire for the very same thing. So I would say if that tension is in your heart, this is just a disguised form of selfishness. Not at all. It's like you lead it into God and saying, God, you make me so deeply satisfied. That's not selfish. That's gratitude. And it's the way to say to God, and so you can count on me with you and every bit of you in my corner to live to the same end, considering others as more important and looking to their interests. If that works at a horizontal level to some degree, imagine what that would do to us vertically as we put Christ's purposes and Christ's mission at the top of the heap. And so we're going to live as one body with one purpose for Christ's mission. And I'm going to have my radar on how I can exhibit selfless actions out of humility for other people so that we are more on mission than ever before. And that's truly when joy is experienced. And don't forget the equation of joy. It's Jesus, others, and you. It's Christ magnified, others edified. That's when you are satisfied. That's Philippians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2. So here's the question we close with. What action will you take in the next seven days that will be an action of fighting for someone's joy? What sacrificial service could you engage with that would be about someone else and not you so that they have a deeper, fuller joy it will return to you. God works it that way. What's the action? My guess is there's hundreds right now in this room. There's probably many in your head. Admittedly, some of them may be the, in the form of an apology or a change. Some men or women here might need to change some things about their life. That might mean a conversation with a spouse or a child or a relative or a co-worker about the way you've just been selfishly ambitious. It may mean for others just an adjustment and some actions or maybe courage to take action and opportunities you know exist but you've not moved on them yet. I just want to kind of leave you in this place this morning. What is the Holy Spirit pressing in on you about that's going to require selflessness and humility so that others are more joyful. When you know that and have it in your head, here's what I want to say to you. Go for it because every bit of God will empower you to do it. There's no pastor that could talk you into that. There's no small group leader or member there's no reward or incentive that could make you do a selfless action when you're like, I'm scared to death to do this. You're right. But God can. 
encouragement in Christ, consolation of God's love, the fellowship of the Spirit, all of their affection and mercy. It's leaning into you right now for you to do the one thing the Holy Spirit's telling you to do that seems impossible. It seems I can never do that. Oh, you can through God's power. Every bit of God will enable you to do what he's called you to do. So I want to leave you right there, okay? And ask you in this moment to fight for another's joy just like Jesus fought for your joy. Will you do that? Let's bow our heads and pray together. And just before they come with the communion plates, I do want to ask you to kind of narrow down that action. I row the same boat as you do, okay? And my guess is you've got multiple actions, adjustments, things that the Holy Spirit's brought to the plate of your life. Like, you know what? I should do that this week. Do not analyze yourself out of that. Don't talk yourself into an arena of excuses. Hear the Holy Spirit in this moment. And though that action may seem monumental, impossible, it may strike fear in your heart, I want to say to you, every bit of God is empowering you to take this step of fighting for another's joy. In that, God will fill you with joy and you will see unity in the body. Oh, for partnerships in this body where we are fighting for another's joy relentlessly and they're fighting for our joy tenaciously. Oh, that's the kind of relationship Everyone loves to be a part of, don't they? That's what's described in Philippians 2. And my guess is that whatever that action is in your head and heart right now, it's your first step in establishing that kind of posture and way of thinking in the body here.